but there's this concept that, you know, this is my project, this is my, and, and I think we need to kind of uh, get rid of those kinds of uh, holding on to a project that it's, it's, it's your own. Anyone in the world can work on, you know, any concept. So uh, yeah, but, but, you know, postdocs uh, starting their own lab and taking uh, aspects of the project with them, that's, definitely something that I encourage and and uh, they, they've done uh, thus far but you know there are so many questions in science that's interesting to ask that if one takes a, a project away it doesn't mean that you can't work on the same area it, you always come up with different angles to ask questions and they, they also um, branch out into different uh, sort of you know, questions or directions. So I'm never really concerned about, um, you know, having to protect my area or protect ideas. Uh, it's best to kind of seed the ideas elsewhere and people taking it uh, and growing their own trees. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. Hi, everybody. I am so excited on this week's episode of Disrupting Innovation to be welcoming Akiko Iwasaki to join me and talk about her journey in health tech innovation and and research. Um, I really wanted to take the time to have a chat with Akiko because she and I only met because of the pandemic and our long COVID research, but she has such an incredible track record of innovation in the field of immunology. She's an absolute rock star in, in that space. And I really wanted to hear from her about her process and how she thinks about science and making real differences in the world through her science. Because we speak to a lot of individuals who are not necessarily a traditional track researcher, but Akiko really is one of those researchers who can do it all. She can innovate, she can create companies, she can win NIH grants that are hard to win. All the while that she's doing it, she's thinking about equity, she's thinking about how to promote women in science, and she's thinking about how to make the greatest impact in her career that she can. So it's always a pleasure to talk to Akiko, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as me. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. Welcome, welcome. It's so good to have you on the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I know we provided some background, but the, the whole idea of this podcast is to talk about why health technology innovations and why innovations in care for healthcare take so long. I think that both of us have experienced since the pandemic, you know, this urgency to do something about all of the patients that we see with long COVID. Um, and I was initially going to, um, uh, you know, we, we typically just start off by having the guests uh, introduce themselves, but uh, given everything, I, I can't help but start off by just congratulating you on your award. <laughs> um, absolutely incredible and very, very well-deserved. And I know that it's going to contribute so much to our understanding of complex chronic illness, but such a big deal for you to be honored with such a prestigious award that I cannot pronounce, but, um, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and then the award that you've just won. Thank you so much for having me, David. Um, it's really an honor for me to speak with you on this platform. Um, my name is Akiko Iwasaki. Uh, I'm a professor of immunobiology at Yale University School of Medicine. 
Um, I've been, I have had my lab uh, since year 2000, so it's uh, 23 years. <laughs> Time flies, but uh, yeah, I started my own lab in 23 years ago. Uh, we've always been interested in the interface between viruses and host, a mammalian host, and uh, we, we started a lab sort of looking at uh, innate immune interaction uh, with the host uh, and the virus and uh, discovered different types of recognition uh, receptors that are involved in detecting viruses um, and started with uh, herpes simplex virus. Um, and then since then, we've been looking at mucosal infection with viruses, how uh, innate immune responses recognize the virus and then mount uh, adaptive immune response to clear and um, remember the infections. And uh, since then, we've tackled many different viruses as humans have been exposed to different uh, emerging and re-emerging viruses like the Zika virus, um, influenza always, um, as well as uh, most currently the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And uh, yeah, we've been studying both the uh, immune responses during the acute phase of COVID response, as well as now with you, uh, long COVID. Um, and so it's it's been a, a very interesting and wonderful journey for me. I often, you know, I'm often asked to talk about innovation. I'm often asked to talk about, um, you know, how to create more innovative structures and infrastructure within academic medical centers and and uh, and just in in society in general. Um, what I love about your background and, you know, the work that you've done, you know, <clears throat> I, I think that the work that we have done together in long COVID has been exceptional and phenomenal and and you're one of my absolute favorite collaborators. Um, you, you've always, despite the fact that much of your work is basic science, it's always been so relevant is the striking thing for me when I looked back at some of the work, you know, when you came onto my radar by emailing me one day and <laughs> said, hey, we should work together, you know, which I'm so glad that you did. Um, you know, when I started to get familiar with your background, you've just been able to translate the work that you do in the lab to the bed to the bedside very very quickly which is something that I'm always looking for because it's a problem that plagues me is is often it takes so long so can you tell me a little bit about why you think your your process has been this way and no. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, you give me too much credit, by the way. Um, I I try to translate <laughs> our findings to the bedside. Absolutely. That's been sort of a, a you know common theme throughout my career. Um, uh, you know, I'm very interested in the basic mechanisms of infection and disease and immune detection and you know, uh, uh, protective mechanisms. And But what I found is that along the way, uh, we run into things that are extremely useful uh, if we applied it to human and human health. Um, and, and so it, it's, I cannot help but uh, try to, you know, translate some of our basic findings into uh, something that's uh, applicable and useful in humans. So this whole thing, um, I guess I've always been uh, interested in um, research that's relevant to human health. So it's not that difficult of a jump for me to go from basic insights into uh, something that's useful. Uh, it started out with the vaccine strategies. Um, we originally uh, des described it as prime and pull strategy. 
um, almost uh, more than 10 years ago now, uh, where you know th this is a culmination of decade of research in the lab, uh, as well as learning from others, um, that there are specific uh, cell types known as tissue resident memory cells that are needed to combat uh, infections like herpes simplex virus that enter through specific mucosal surfaces. And we, uh, because we understand how the natural immune response defends the host against these viruses, we wanted to mimic uh, exactly what the natural immune res response does, which is to establish tissue resident memory T cells at the site of these um, viral portal of entry, uh, in this case, genital mucosa. And we were able to trick the immune response in doing this by immunizing the host with the conventional vaccine and then pulling the circulating T cell into the site using chemokines. That's sort of the second step we call pull because we're pulling these T cells into the sites. So this two-step process called prime and pull um, was our first sort of invention that we tried to um, you know, commercialize and make it um, accessible to people. Uh, we're still not there yet. Um, you know, the, the animal responses and uh, both prophylactic and therapeutic vaccine um, look amazing, but there are certain diseases I'm discovering that is very difficult to generate enough capital or enough interest uh, to make make useful things like vaccines. Uh, you combine uh, sexually transmitted diseases and <laughs> genital mucosa all together. That's sort of a bad combination for <laughs> for raising money and, and you know making it commercially available. Uh, but the, the, the concept is still lives on because um, you know uh, 10 years later we came up with a, a 2.0 version of the prime and pool, which is called the prime and spike which is the same kind of idea. You just prime the body to generate systemic circulating immune response and then pull those cells into the nasal mucosa this time using the spike protein or any antigen of your choice um, and then allow the mucosal immune response to be established. And, and so that's sort of my more, most recent companies that I co-founded. But along the way, I, I, I've yeah, I've co-founded several companies, and but none of them are you know striking <laughs> anything, <laughs> IPO, anything like that yet. Yeah, well, we do, you know, look, there's time, there's time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, you know, not to overstate anything, but I, I think what you're effortlessly you know sort of discussing here is something that most basic scientists um, and translational scientists and clinical scientists actually rarely make it to, you know, that this whole pipeline of innovation from just making the discovery all the way to starting companies. Um, and you're, you're saying companies, plural. <laughs> um, it, it, it tells me that your mindset is thinking about the whole, the whole process as opposed to just, this is my area, I'm going to focus on this area and not worry about who commercializes it or pushes it into the ecosystem, um, I think, you know, a part of making sure that your discoveries actually get used is thinking about, okay, well, okay, well, how do I get it formulated and how do I get it out to the public and how do I get it, you know, moving, moving along that pipeline. So um, even though you're, you're being very modest here, I think that still we, we, what's shining through is, is very much the fact that you do have that whole uh, pipeline in mind. Thank you. One of the other things that I often think about in terms of what makes, what does make someone sort of 
more creative and more likely to innovate and disrupt in a space. Um, you know, and and we have we have data on this, so we, we we can think about it a little bit. And one thing that often pops up as as a a trigger for innovation and um, and creativity is coming from another culture. Mm. So I've certainly experienced it. You know, coming from Australia, moving to America, having this wild culture shock of a country that you think would be pretty much the same as the country you've come from and you arrive and it's completely different <laughs> in many different ways um i would imagine that the culture shock was was probably fairly uh, you know more significant coming from from japan um do you think that that you're making the move changed the way you think about science, changed your approach in any way that was was important? I think absolutely. Um, you know, I don't have a control setting, so I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed in Japan or if I had, you know, been born in the U.S. But um, I think this cultural shift, uh, first of all, it kind of taught me resilience, um, you know, which is an important quality uh, of a scientist or maybe any other profession, um, because we do come across a lot of barriers and a lot of difficulties. And um, it's our ability to kind of overcome those things that uh, enable us to move forward. And that definitely uh, coming from a different culture has taught me that. Um, second is the adaptability. Um, you know, I had to adapt to a totally different language and culture, climate, everything else. Um, and that, you know, again, it taught me to be flexible and to be able to kind of assimilate myself in a different setting um, and then survive in that setting. So um, multiple reasons um, why it has helped me, I think, more than harmed me. Uh, coming from Japan. And of course, my experience growing up in Japan as a child um, has really formed my sort of strong desire to speak up for women in science. Um, and that's sort of the reason I left the country. So I, I definitely gave me, um, in addition to science, sort of advocacy um, and, and need to kind of speak up um, for people who are underrepresented. Absolutely. And, and, your leadership there has been absolutely like incredible to to watch uh, from the sidelines. I, I mean, you told me something actually that, uh, if you're comfortable sharing, I think uh, would would set off a light bulb for a lot of folks. Um, but you, you actually told me something about the way that you speak Japanese and how well the way that you're it is expected that you speak Japanese and how now that you've spent so much time in America, you don't like <laughs> a certain way when you when you have to go back home. Um, yeah. And I just, it blew my mind because I was unaware of the fact that mm -hmm. even just language uh, is skewed in certain ways to create, mm -hmm. you know, systemic disadvantages for for groups of individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's uh, just, I'm sure other Japanese women can associate with this, but uh, the way in which the language is set up for uh, people of different, you know, hierarchy or different um, gender or different roles, uh, it's very much set up to uh, maintain that hierarchy. So uh, for, for me to speak to an older man, for example, I would have to choose my word carefully. Um, and I wouldn't be, you know, using the same language as I do in this country. 
to everyone. So uh, this kind of puts me immediately in a submissive uh, and you know sort of uh, lower rank, um, societal rank, uh, just by choosing the, the, those words and phrases, and that. Uh, that, that, that bothers me. And, and it, it kind of like inter interestingly affects me psych psychologically that when I start speaking the language, uh, my demeanor changes, my voice, it changes, it rises to a higher, higher tone. And it just, I don't like it, but I can't help it. So yeah, when we talk about creativity and we talk about innovation, it, it's so easily understandable how you could go from one society and one culture where you are expected to act and behave in a certain way. You move to another society and another culture and those barriers are raised. Other barriers may be dropped, mm -hmm. but those barriers are raised and it allows your brain to, you know, <laughs> to think about problems differently and uh, initiate and think about your work differently. Um, I, I think that that's uh, really powerful and amazing. It sure is. So, you know, when I speak in Japanese and when I'm in Japan for uh, an extended time period, I I feel like I just lose that, um, not aggressiveness, but assertiveness and um, even creativity. I just feel like because the culture rewards um, a certain amount of conformity, right? So um, that being immersed in that culture alone kind of impairs my ability to think uh, creatively, which is which is a terrible thing, you know, like uh, for people who live in, in the country and who live in similar countries where uh, the expectation um, of women's roles are quite different from uh, being a scientist or innovator or whatever else. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing what the culture and the language does to the, 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 the psyche itself. Absolutely. And, um, and I'm now just going to rattle down a list of other things that make people creative and innovative and disruptive uh, because they're relevant to you, um, which is, believe it or not, this is Harvard research. This is, you know, this is not me saying it. This is Harvard saying it. Um, being married to someone of another culture. Oh, really? <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, uh, I've had the, the great pleasure of meeting Ruslan, um, who, you know, himself is a scientist and also, uh, it, you know, comes from another culture. And, um, you know, similarly, I, I'm curious if if that's something that, um, that you've felt or experienced in that, like the way that you guys can interact over scientific issues or, you know, speak about things has, has uh, you know, added another dimension to your work um, and how you think about problems. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they do say opposites attract, right? So <laughs> maybe there's some evolutionary reason for that. But <laughs> yeah, so we come from very different cultures. Uh, so Ruslan is a very famous immunologist. Um, you know, I admire what he does and we, we speak about um, the science a lot, of course, and bounce ideas off each other. But we do come from very different cultures. I grew up in Japan. He grew up in the former Soviet um, Union. And um, his background is quite different. He uh, And that, I think, does stimulate uh, different kinds of conversation than if I had to speak with uh, people with the, my same experience. So I, I can see that. I mean, it, sometimes the cultures are so different. <laughs> so different it's hard for us to find the common ground but i i think by trying to find the common ground and understanding it kind of 
makes us grow uh, to, to appreciate uh, completely different points of view. So that's um, like a daily sort of challenge <laughs> for my for my brain to be able to um, accept and understand um, people's point of view that that's very quite different. So it's speaking for myself, you know, since you shared, um, my wife Rose is, is American. She's from Pennsylvania and um, she's also a neuroscientist, but a, a social neuroscientist. And um, she doesn't have a clinical background. So when we have these discussions, it, it very early on, um, when we were always talking about the relative work that we were doing, it was, she was very unrelenting and clear on the fact that patients need to be at the center of everything that we're doing. We need to be doing participatory action research. We, you know, we can't be framing the clinicians as the top of the hierarchy and, and then, you know, the patients don't really get to have a say. It just stuff happens to them and we study what happens. Um, and I, I credit a lot of the work that we've done in, in my team with having those conversations early on with Rose, because I was suddenly indoctrinated in the other way of, I have a clinical background, I have a clinical research background, everything that gets hammered into you from, from that world is you, you need to pull yourself back and you need to be dispassionate and you need to have zero bias and, you know, and don't listen to what the patients are saying because the patients, you know, of course, they don't know the condition and they don't know the science the way you know the science. I credit a lot of the, the interactions I was able to have and, and the deep appreciation that Rose gave me for American culture where there are uh, gaps in health equity that we don't have so much in, in Australia with, with socialised medicine um, or not as much, certainly, you know, social... social uh, uh, inadequacies and, and uh, equity issues are, are rampant in Australia, but in in healthcare and health research, um, you know, I was coming from a certain culture. I showed up and I could see these gaps and they were being, you know, shared with me um, by my partner. And, and then it really has impacted the way that I do science and it has impacted the way that um, we engage with our community as opposed to as opposed to holding ourselves back from the community, which is, I'm sadly learning, is all too common in academic health centers where it's actually, you know, as you and I know from some of our long COVID work, it's even hard to get ethics approval to have a conversation with a patient because the ethics board wants to know, well, what are exactly the words that you're going to use with this person and <laughs> give us a script? And what are they gonna say back to you? And it's like, I don't know what they're going to say back to you. Have you ever had a conversation before? Do you know? Absolutely. And so now I see where this comes from in you. I mean, you're one of those very rare people who really values, like, you know, patients as a, as a center of a study and, you know, um, creating partnerships and, uh, that, that's something that has really been uh, just remarkable about you and uh, throughout you know, our interactions, I've, I've learned so much from you, but I, I guess it all started with your conversation with Rose. And that's exactly, you know, you know she, she gets full credit because <laughs> that's fine with me. Yeah. Um, well, I, no, I appreciate that. And um, moving back toward, you know, the, the sort of central theme of what we're doing, um, 
I, I think that this is a really important uh, piece as well because I think we, we've we've both um, started interacting a lot with patient-led communities and patient-led research collaboratives. I don't know how uh, how new that is for you in terms of your previous work versus your COVID work, but certainly now you're in it. Um, does it does it feel as though it's accelerating the work uh, for you? Like, do you feel the same sense of purpose that I feel? Um, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the COVID has really changed the way I, um, I'm able to access patients. Uh, before COVID, we were doing um, a lot of our research is focused on animal models and uh, patient samples, but we don't interact with patients. It's sort of secondhand, you know, after the clinicians have already uh, interacted with the patients. But now with uh, with you, as well as with Harlan Krumholtz, where we are, um, have the opportunity to actually interact with patients. Uh, this is uh, has been a really rewarding experience for me. Um, I, I learned so much from the patients and they're the experts of their own diseases. Um, and so why not learn from them? And uh, there are many insights that the patients have given me that has led to uh, sort of new breakthroughs and new understandings that I would have never gotten on my own. So that's been uh, incredible uh, for me. And uh, this, you know, this COVID pandemic, even though it, it's terrible things have happened, for me, the, this engagement with patients have been, have been transformative. I was I was half joking about the the ethics board thing, but but also, you know, as we as we sort of start to we've seen the value, right? We've seen the value of involving patients. What do you think has to change to make that interaction easier? You know, I, I know that you mentioned Harlan and and some of the work that he's doing is is incredible. Like systemically, how do you see the pathway to having more patients involved? on a very deep level with research? And, and is there anything that you're currently doing to, to make that easier? Yeah, so I think a platform like the Yale Lesson Study, uh, where uh, we have town hall meetings with patients, and um, you know, of course, patients are free to interact with me um, in any other time, of course, um, by email or direct messaging or whatever. Um, and that, that's been really great, but uh, there are, you know, the IRB <laughs> protocols and, you know, things that really take a long time to get approved. Even, you know, every single tweet that I make about the lesson study has to go through IRB board. And that, yeah, I cannot really do an immediate engagement uh, when everything has to go through that. And I understand the risk uh, of me tweeting something uh, that, that may not be <laughs> completely on board with, with what they want me to say, but, um, you know, I, I think the oversight is a little bit, <laughs> little bit complicating this uh, this yeah. relationship. I'm not sure I do understand the risk. You know, I, it's funny. It's like, um, uh, you know, these these institutions will trust us to bring in millions of dollars of funding, but won't trust us to make a tweet. You know, like <laughs> somehow they understand the issue more completely than we understand the issue. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's fair, um, and. Uh, you know, it, it is, it's interesting because um, I, I think it does pull away from the organic interactions that lead to the light bulb moments. You know, if, if you're reading off of a script mm -hmm. and then a patient responds 
and then you can't actually respond to the response because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not on script. Mm -hmm. um, you can't get to the bottom of anything. You've you've got you know, oh well, I've got to go away and and get get permission to to, to respond in the way I'd like to respond. Yeah. Um, and you know, it it was interesting, and I, I think it would have been 2017. I I had this um, argument with an ethics board where. Um, we were working with a group of individuals with spinal cord injury and we were talking about pain. Um, and uh, there was this moment of, um, we were talking about uh, whether or not pain scales uh, are good or bad, you know, for, for measuring uh, levels of, of pain that people with spinal cord injury get. And there was this moment where we, it was just, it was just a friendly, conversation amongst people who come to my lab all the time and just hang out and and you know um, uh, you know just members of the family more or less and mm -hmm. I was I was sort of asking them about um, things that are missing and one of the participants in the group sort of piped up well I really wish this would ask about the weather because my pain levels can be just completely different depending on how much humidity and, and what the wind is like and, and so on and so forth. And I heard that and I was like, well, that sounds like stuff that I've heard before, but never really taken seriously. And, and I was like, does anyone else feel that way? And the whole group piped up and was like, the weather changes neuropathic pain completely. Yeah. And I said, oh, I was like, so, okay, let me ask you a question. If, I, if you're in one of my clinical trials for chronic pain and I test your baseline pain on a sunny day, a, a nice summer day, mm -hmm. and then I test your post-treatment pain on a humid, heavy, muggy day, mm -hmm. is that going to affect my readings? And in unison, everyone was like, absolutely, this will affect <laughs> um, And so I went away and I, go I Googled, you know, like I Google scholared, you know, and did a whole lit review on the effects of, you know, atmospheric pressure and meteorology on, on pain reporting. There's like one paper that mm. studies it. There's no, um, there's no uh, systematic reviews, or there's no papers on it, its ability to affect outcome measures in, um, uh, you know, in in clinical trials. And no one's controlling for it as a variable in the in their clinical trials. Um, and so I went to the IRB, and I was so excited, and I was like, you know, I had this conversation with a group of patients, and. I think we should publish on this. You know, we we should take the transcript of the conversation and you know, mm -hmm. and do a publication. And immediately the IRB was like, "Well, did you did you sign consent forms to have conversations with these people?" I was like, "This was during a happy hour. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? We were like drinking beers together, and they they were like, "What do you mean you socially interact with patients?" And I was like, <laughs> "Well." They come to the clinic, we form a relationship, they they go on their way, but we we stay in touch. And yeah, they're they're friends. <laughs> no, they can either be research participants or they can be patients. They're not allowed to be friends. And I was like, <laughs> hold up. <laughs> you know? And and I feel that that is such a problematic dichotomy where it it we're losing so much innovation. Because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't let us 
have those, you know, it says those relationships are not permitted mm. um, uh, for whatever reason. So, you know, I think we do need to find ways to disrupt, um, you know, uh, disrupt the way that that institutional review boards are policing or uh, uh, creating uh, these barriers to us having the conversations that matter with our patients. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, um, how are we going to do it? Exactly. And there are other barriers like that institutionally, like the material transfer agreement. <laughs> It's like where innovation goes to die, right? Like MTAs. I've had so many collaborations die because of MTAs and how mm -hmm. long it takes and how impossible it is. Even mm -hmm. between you and I, you know, we've been collaborating all this time and still we need more MTAs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe... I believe that if we had waited for the paperwork to be done, we would not have gotten the study off the ground. You know, I, <laughs> three years later. <laughs> three years later, I think the paperwork came through, and it, it is—it's it, a shame. It's such a huge issue because um, you know that uh, not only is that um, you know not only is that a killer of innovation, that's a killer of careers right yes. you can have an innovative young faculty member and if their material transfer agreement is held in you know frozen in in <laughs> in, in carbonite up there for for three years um that's you know what most what most assistant professors get a five-year startup mm -hmm. probably yes. so three three out of five years is just waiting for the legal agreement and then They've got two years to either win a grant or not be a professor anymore. Um, that's that's really challenging for young faculty to um, to to navigate. And and again, to your point, if something's difficult for one young faculty member, then it's going to be extra difficult for female faculty. It's going to be extra difficult for people of color who are faculty, because if they speak up, you know, I I have like the most privilege in the world because I'm, you know, an able-bodied white man. And like, and so if I yell at someone for things taking too long, it's completely acceptable. Whereas if <laughs> if a, a woman does it, or if, you know, a person of color does it, oh, this is problematic behavior, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it just, uh, we, we see these barriers all the time and it's it's such a challenge. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but also in in the same breath, many of these these agreements, they're just templates, mm -hmm. you know, and then we just have legal argument over whose template to use, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's just... Uh... Anyway, something that has to change in the future. You know, I, I hope that we can sort of take something from the, this conversation and actually move toward convincing our institutions that this needs to change, you know, uh, or uh, creating some sort of uh, government sort of sanctioned MTA wizard where everyone just sort of clicks the buttons and say, you know, it's like TurboTax, right? It's like, <laughs> click this, 
this, click this. We ba we both came up with the idea equally, so we're going to share the IP. You know, fifty fifty. Mm -hmm. Done. Sign yeah. here. Sign here. Thank you. Um, <laughs> sometimes the cynic in me wonders how much of this is just feeding a, a legal <laughs> a legal practice somewhere that <laughs> that is uh, having the time of their life. <laughs> What fun to be doing MTAs, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's not, not fun for anybody, but um, yes, there, there are these. Well, I think we also had the conversation once upon a time of, um, you know, whenever one of us wins a grant or a pot of money, it's like, do you want some of this money? No. We, it's, too, it's too hard to yeah. transfer the money between our institutions. It, yeah. It's not worth our time and effort to do all the paperwork. So That's you keep your money, I'll keep my money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. so many, so many barriers to doing things. <laughs> to, to rapid, rapid work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then, I mean, I suppose we we've spoken about MTAs and ethics approval, and uh, you know, let's let's talk publication because this is something that we also, you and I. <laughs> Uh, sort of text each other about quite a bit, which is yeah. um, thank goodness for preprint. Yes, uh, thank goodness. Yeah, that has been. I think that has been an innovation that allows you to plant a flag or say, "Hey, we did this work. We think this is good work." The internet can decide if it, you know, if it likes it or not. But here it is, and we did it first. And then you go into the review process, which I mean. What's the clock on our, our current paper together? Are we at a year? Not yet. <laughs> August, August is when we put the preprint up, right? So, yeah, it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, yeah, it's May. <laughs> <laughs> so we got three, you know, three more months and then we'll be, we'll be at a year. That will be our one-year anniversary of being <laughs> under review. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the sad thing is it's so not uncommon, right? Like one-year review is... It's just a normal thing, which I'm not sure it should be uh, take this long. And it's not for the lack of us trying. I mean, we're we're working so hard, right, to yeah. uh, address the reviewers and everything else. But yeah, it's it's so hard. Review comments are uh, you know variable based on. I've certainly said this before, but the the sort of this double blind peer review idea that many journals are. Uh, are approaching, I think, but I also think that just with a double-blind review process, you should also have the double reveal of <laughs> at the acceptance. Yeah, these were the people who reviewed, and these were their names, you know, <laughs> and these are the people who received the review. I think it just makes people a lot more polite, yeah. uh, and because if you're, you know, it's one thing to anonymously slam. A, 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 a manuscript and it's quite another to realize that the author is going to know who said what um, and and attribute, you know, the tone and the uh, tenor of, of the comments to to a person. Um, and uh, we, we haven't quite gotten there, but we have gotten to double blind, which I think does remove some bias because mm -hmm. I've I, I'm sure you you may have had the same experience as me of um, 
certainly being in in uh, you know an NIH study section where a reviewer will say something wildly problematic like I I know this person's work they do good work you know <laughs> and it's like wait a minute <laughs> you're not allowed to give someone a grant based on you know uh, you knowing them and uh, and just being sure that they can pull it off um, or you know or in the peer reviewed paper side of things well I know you and you're usually pretty solid so let's let's rush this through for publication but but so often that is what what happens um, yeah yeah exactly and uh, yeah that's why I think you're right the double blinded um, review process is a good idea um, especially it, it, it's sort of you know revealing the name uh, and um, you know ethnicity of uh, authors could hurt a certain group of people and uh you know this will sort of alleviate that that aspect of it as well absolutely um and so if we if we keep going down the chain then so we've we've <laughs> we've waited forever we've got the paper published um so now we're at what four years transfer <laughs> 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 agreement took three paper review took one um <laughs> the paper's finally out. <laughs> um, now, what what usually happens at that point um, in a traditional science, you know, traditional track researcher world is on to the next, right? So it's like, okay, publish that, you know, uh, you know, tweet about it maybe or do a press release or whatever the case may be. Um, and then either use that data to get another grant, which again, let's, you know, long, long period of time <clears throat> or, um, or just, we publish that we've, we've solved that <laughs> now let's move on to the next, um, project or the next idea or the next, uh, concept, but, um, you know, I, I'd I'd love for you to explain. You know, so now now as you mentioned, you've you've sort of taken a lot of concepts and brought them into into market. You know, into companies and and things like that. So, um, how does your process differ once you've published something that is quite explosive? Like, what what do you do? Where do you where do you go? Um, how do you take next steps to make it actionable? Yeah. So the paper. Um... For example, if we take our long COVID paper together, um, there are lots of um, important follow-up questions that need to be asked. So it, the natural thing for um, us to do is to, to take that next step and follow up uh, certain aspects. Um, and that's what we're doing precisely. Uh, even before the publication, we are you know, doing a lot of, sort of follow-up um, studies on this. And then of course, you know, uh, a new questions that may, um, open a totally new area of study that we hadn't anticipated may also come about. And uh, so I, I think, you know, this study in particular, I think it's going to seed so many different studies in the future. And that's why I'm very excited, and not just for us, but for other people, hopefully it'll be like, a, you know, a springboard for other people to go to their next step um, by using our data and, and sort of learning from it. And so I, I think that particular study is going to have a lot of, um, you know, it's going to be fertile grounds for many other studies. Um, and, and so I, I think 
you know, it, it's it's just it's not just linear, but it's also kind of sideways, mm -hmm. uh, seeing a lot of different uh, ideas and studies and people's careers. You know, uh, people are, who publish these papers are then going to move on to uh, become, a, you know, a scientist or clinicians or whatever else that they they choose to, and it, it gives them that. Uh, you know, springboard to, to go to the next step as well. Absolutely. Is there anything that sort of um, guides you, you know, other than just what holds your attention and what you're currently interested in? Is there anything that guides you around um, if you make a particular finding? You know, I, I, I would say that I've got a, a track record of disruption in, in my space and innovation, but I also have a track record of in certain cases I disrupt and then I walk away. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, I did this thing. It was cool. I love doing it, but I want to leave it for others to mm -hmm. iterate on, you know. Yeah. Um, but then there are examples of things that I did and I, you know, I feel very, very obligated to follow up and own mm -hmm. and, and keep pushing until there's a therapy or, a, you know, or um, an option for treatment. Uh, for a patient population, is there anything when you make a discovery, um, what what goes through your mind about, you know, I've made this discovery, I'm going to see it through versus I've made this discovery, but now others others can take it the rest of the way. Yeah, so I'm always mindful of um, postdocs who work on different projects uh, so that they can take their, their project and run with it. Um, because, you know, otherwise it's very difficult to start de novo something in your own lab. And so, um, you know, first of all, I, I, I encourage that. I never hang on to any discoveries as my own. No discoveries are owned by anybody, right? So it's, it's uh, <laughs> but, but there's this concept that, you know, this is my project, this is my, and, and I think we need to kind of uh, get rid of those kinds of uh, holding on to a project that it's, it's, it's your own. Anyone in the world can work on, you know, any concept. So, yeah, but but you know, postdocs uh, starting their own lab and taking uh, aspects of the project with them—that's definitely something that I encourage, and and uh, they they've done uh, thus far. Um, but you know, there are so many questions in science that's interesting to ask. That there's you know, if one takes a project away, it doesn't mean that you can't work on the same area. You know, it, you always come up with different angles to ask questions and they, they also um, branch out into different uh, sort of you know questions or directions so I'm never really concerned about um, you know having to protect my area or protect ideas uh, it's best to kind of seed the ideas elsewhere and people taking it uh, and growing their own trees you know in their own labs um, it, with respect to what I think uh, I kind of uh, pursue long term um, it's always been, sort of vaccines is something that I've that that I've always found it very interesting. That's sort of the reason I went into immunology. And so that's been a common thread throughout my career. Um, as I mentioned already, the prime and pool and the prime and spike and the next generation, it's it's always going to continue. Uh, whereas some other things, um, you know, different viruses that are um, you know emerging in the human populations. Um, for example, Zika virus, we worked on that and then looked at the impact of Zika virus infection uh, in pregnancy. And that was very important. Um, 
and people who worked on that have now gone on to develop their own program in that area. But when COVID hit, I, we sort of dropped that aspect of um, research. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, 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 what virus we work with may differ depending on what's happening in the world. Um, but the concept keeps building on top of each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, definitely I'm new to this virus game, as you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I already see the way that um, everything we've learned from long COVID can be applied to other complex chronic illnesses, especially infection-associated complex chronic illnesses. And so now, you know, my uh, spare time and leisure hours are filled with, like, rapidly trying to learn everything I can about the immune system <laughs> and viruses because that was definitely not a part of my practice. But, yes, I, I certainly... Um, it's something I think about now as we're building out a new center for complex chronic illness. It's like, okay, well, this is probably not the last pandemic that will ever occur with a virus at the center of it. And this is probably not the last time that we're going to see a whole bu a bunch of people affected by an infection associated uh, chronic illness. So yes, all, all of these learnings are going to stack um, as, as we, as we continue to explore. So, um, yeah, that, that definitely resonates. Um, but, uh, I, I loved what you were saying about, um, not owning mm -hmm. ideas, not being too attached to ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. I think it's just, um, uh, I, again, I think it's something that <clears throat> we are unfortunately trained, uh, as scientists to do. But I think it's training that comes from a scarcity mindset of there's not enough funding and there can only be one person. And, you know, and, and uh, if you just have the moment to step out of that mindset and say, actually, yeah, are you, you know, are you really going to run out of questions? To ask? <laughs> I feel bad for you if that's a, if that's legitimately a problem rattling around your head that you'll run out of questions. Like, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, ultimately, that is incredibly freeing because, yeah. you know, suddenly you can just, you can ask any question. You don't need to be asking these narrow incremental questions off of a, a single, um, you know, a single idea and, and, um, and it, can, it can really lead you to some, some crazy discoveries. I mean, I think from, from my standpoint, um, one of the, you know, I, I think one of the most important things that I started doing for my own career was, you know, I was working with stroke patients and I was working with spinal cord injury survivors. And, and then I just started working with athletes because I, I thought, well, the, the task is the same. I'm trying to get a, an adult nervous system to learn a new thing. Mm -hmm. So the principles that we apply should be the same. And one is a high, highly heavily resourced group and one is a completely under-resourced group. Surely we can learn something from the heavily resourced group <laughs> and bring it back over to the under-resourced group. And sure enough, you know, it worked out. And uh, and sure enough, you know, it started to spin off all sorts of grants and funding and, and, and ideas. But um, 
I remember when, you know, first pitching the idea to, you know, at, at, I was at Cornell and they were like, maybe just, maybe just focus on, you know, maybe just focus on this, <laughs> focus on that. And I was like, mm, I'm going to go push that guy out of an airplane, actually. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting how we're trained. Uh, and, um, and, you know, a, again, I have to acknowledge my privilege. I have to acknowledge how risky it is to go off the beaten track. And sometimes it, it's de-risked by the fact that we're heading over to another country, you know, or we're ending up in a whole new environment. So everything's new. So you, maybe you just feel a bit bolder to try something, you know, completely new. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's de-risked by privilege, you know, like by showing up and saying, well, if this doesn't work out, I can go back to Australia and be a clinician and, you know, uh, and just be just fine. And remember that fun time I went away to America for four years, you know, <laughs> um, as opposed to, oh, my God, my entire career is over because I tried this risky thing and <laughs> no one wants to hire me and I've got $200,000 in college debt, which, you know, as, as you and I probably have never experienced <laughs> college debt. What, what's that? I didn't know. What, you know, what, I understood the concept before I came to America yeah. But I did not not understand the magnitude, you know, like uh, I, I don't actually know what it's like in, in Japan, but in Australia, my degree cost $12,000 all up, you know, like four yeah. years of schooling, $12,000, um, yeah. which is is now at this time, if there are any Australians listening, is is dating myself significantly. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I mean, American education is just ridiculously expensive. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I, it's unsustainable to <laughs> to have to pay so much money for education. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel bad for the young people and, and <laughs> parents and, like and, me. <laughs> and those who are bankrolling the young people. <laughs> yeah. Akiko, um, thank you so much for spending an hour with me. And Congratulations again on this amazing, uh, prestigious award that you've won. Uh, I just know that it's going to help so many more people um, with, with everything that it will enable you to do. And, um, you know, uh, I hope to have you back to, to talk more about these issues. And uh, can it's never enough time with you. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. And I, I do look forward to working with you on all these projects. I'm counting on you as my partner. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino.